Welcome to Half Hour to Curtain, a monthly podcast with theater artists of note. That's Dan Fishback over there. And that's Mark Kaufman over there. And we're here in Los Angeles, California, to bring you an interview with one of today's theater luminaries. And it's interesting because uh, so far we've been talking to actors mostly. We had Dominique Morisot, a writer. And there's a lot of creativity that's happening in theater. And a lot of it is coming from a few directors who have in the last years claimed a stake towards developing theater in a new way. And I think that's essentially what our interview is going to be about today. Dan, tell us about her. Our guest today is Rachel Chavkin. With undergraduate and graduate degrees from NYU's Tisch School and Columbia University, respectively, Rachel is the founding artistic director of The Team, a cooperative company based in Brooklyn. The Team's mission is to develop and produce plays that speak to the experience of living in America today. The dozen productions they've developed have played around the world since the company's inception in 2004. Notably, as a freelance director, Rachel shepherded both Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812 and Hadestown through a process that ultimately brought them to Broadway. The winner of a variety of awards, including the Obie and Drama Desk, and the 2019 Tony Award for Best Director of a Musical for Hadestown, we're very pleased to welcome Rachel Chavkin. Thanks so much. I'm really happy to be with you. Awesome. Well, I'd like to uh, start talking a little bit about the team. This is a company that was founded by you and a small group of alumni from NYU. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, did the, how did this come about? How did this idea develop? Yeah, I mean, it's it's certainly we're now 15 years in, so it has evolved a great deal, including even how we think about membership as a company at this point, which is for a whole host of both aesthetic and personal and political reasons. But the original impetus was we were all a couple years out of school. I had begun making my own work while still in college. My first piece that I made when I was a junior was a deconstruction, reconstruction of Allen Ginsberg's poem, Howl, Hmm. that interwove that poem with Norman Mailer's essay, The White Negro, and writing about bebop jazz and particularly what these white writers were fetishizing, emulating, appropriating from black musicians in their work. And it was a very movement-driven piece and it left me incredibly hungry to keep making my own work. So I, I kept doing that out of school and that became sort of officially the team in 2004 when a group of us who all I think were seeking something more than just sort of the grinder machine sort of of quote unquote career um, and the kind of material that you do and do not have access to when you're fairly powerless in your early career. And these were actors who were so wildly smart and had so much to bring besides just their young technique as actors. And so we began making work and that very quickly evolved into a group writing process that is kind of still how we make our work today. It's assignment driven and ultimately consensus driven with me sort of putting the initial prompts to the company, but those prompts are based on conversations that we've been having formally and informally, and then everyone tearing those prompts apart and being driven by their own agendas 
kind of circling some central ideas. Is there a, a thematic unity? I know you talk about, uh, or from what I've read, reflecting what it is to live in America today, is that the overriding principle? Is that the mission that you're on? Yes. The mission of the company is to make new work about the experience of living in America today. And definitely what that became, which was not the intention, but there was a certain moment where we looked back as we were like, middle of our seventh work or something. And it was like, oh my gosh, every single one of our shows has had characters and or storylines from American history bumping up against American mythology and very often being about the painful gap between the two. You know, if we think about mythology as the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves, that they're often, I think, particularly with America because we're pretty darn good storytellers, there's like a horrendous chasm sometimes between the myth and the reality. Mm-hmm. And so our work has had, we made Rose of Elvis that had two women playing Elvis Presley and Theodore Roosevelt arguing about masculinity and meat and guns and many other things. And we made a show where Robert F. Kennedy was resurrected from the soil. And we made a show based around Gone with the Wind in which Margaret Mitchell was a character who was essentially atoning for the sin of writing Gone with the Wind. So yeah, these characters always pop up in the work. It sounds like structurally your company works a little bit like Anne Bogart and, and City Company you know, work, it, just in terms of sort of the ensemble structure of it and not you know, the, the corporate top-down structure of the way a lot of work is created. I know you studied with Anne at Columbia and you've talked a little bit uh, in interviews about her influence on you, but how much has she influenced you as a creator as much as a, as a director? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. I mean, Anne was extremely important for my early development as an artist. I first encountered the viewpoints when I was 19 in a summer training program, not with anyone from the city company, with someone who had trained with the city company and was uh, essentially teaching their teachings. I fell immediately and madly in love with the viewpoints. And that actually began a whole long period of falling quite in love with a series of of approaches to postmodern dance improvisation Mm. as a forum for Mm. improvisation. And actually some of that was very related to the work that Anne was doing. Some of it was actually quite antithetical to the work Mm. that Anne was doing from sort of a conceptual perspective, particularly, this is very nerdy, but like thinking about soft focus versus hard focus Mm. and the difference between those two being hyper informative about the performer's presence in space. But yeah, I remember seeing Bob Rauschenberg America like five times, but there were also, I would say I was as or more influenced by the Wooster group and Mm. seeing their work by seeing some of what I would call the Wooster Group's heirs. So the work that was happening at the Collapsible Hole with Radio Hole and Collapsible Giraffe and Banana Bag and Bodice, which was a kind of peer, just slightly ahead company. So there was a huge amount of ensemble-driven work Mm. as well as 
European ensembles. Like I remember seeing Need Company's Isabella's Room at BAM, which was the first sort of non-traditional musical I ever saw in that it was storytelling with saturated with song, but by no means was any kind of commercial definition musical. And I went back to see Isabella's Room at BAM, I think every night that it was there. Oh, wow. And it, it, it still remains for me probably the most, my favorite live work. It was stunning. I remember seeing that as well and just being absolutely stunned by it. Going back even a little bit earlier, did you always want to be a director? How did you discover your foundation and, and, you know, your... Oh, yeah. Well, no. I mean, no is the answer. Uh, So, and actually this is part of why the viewpoints kind of went off like a bomb in me as well as postmodern dances. I actually grew up playing sports. I played soccer from the time I was four. To be clear, I was never like particularly good. Uh, It's not like I was on a club team. I did make varsity in my freshman year. So I was like, I was fearless in the sense as I played stopper and my job was to basically shut down the other team's best player always. So I didn't have a whole lot of skill, (laughs) but I was like very ready to chase and if need shove a girl. Um, (laughs) Okay. And I loved the group aspect of sports. I loved the community. I'm an only child and I'm sure like it filled some gap. And then I did go to a summer camp called Stage Door Manor that I am very ambivalent about because it was so clicky and status driven. But at the same time, I definitely would not be in theater if it wasn't for my time at Stage Door. And it was really right before applying to college. I had always, I should say, in terms of being a director, I had always been bossy. And in fact, that was always my critique of other girls was if, if they asked why I didn't like her, I would say, well, she's very bossy. Um, uh, but yeah, I decided sort of very suddenly that I wanted to do theater and I wanted to go to school at a place that had directing as well as acting. Mm -hmm. And I went and listened to the, you know, like pitch for Playwrights Horizon Theater School at Tisch. And in five minutes, I was like, that's where I want to go. That's it. And so viewpoints kind of actually, I think resonated so deeply because it, I always experienced it as the physical manifestation of what the Meisner technique teaches, which is listening and kinesthetic response and deep internal reaction. That it's it's hard to act, it's much easier to react. And if you're listening hard enough, there's no there's never a lack of things to be reacting to. And so there was something athletic about it in a way that just clicked with me. It seems well and and I guess it feels like the the team is uh, an obvious extension from your sense of working with the team, both in sports and wanting to, I mean, of course, theater is a collaborative art form in any case, but it feels like you your, your first foot forward is right with collaboration of hearing yeah. what other people have to say and getting as much from them as the ideas that you throw out to the direction you want a production to go, yes? Yeah, totally. I mean, it was embarrassingly late to the team and my 20s that I was like, oh, right, I like sports. <laughs> and that, that I like made that connection of community and, and 
those values. But, but yeah, I mean, fundamentally what I realized in college, I think I had a teacher, I must've had a teacher who said something to the effect of you evolve the process. If you're going to be, if, if you're going to thrive as a, as a director or a maker, you evolve a process that is reflective of how you want to work mm. and how you are best at working. And though I didn't realize at the time that I was doing it, I had a, a feeling that I, I panicked if I was the sole ideas person. I wasn't an auteur in that sense, but what I am excellent at what I would say my my strongest suit is as a director is taking someone's idea and making it better is I'm an excellent editor and dramaturg obviously and dramaturg yes these are these are my this is my happy place Mm -hmm. and so that's essentially what I the process that I set up with the team which was everyone would be a writer in the room. And in the early phases, I would say I was the editor of the work, though I did not write any more than anyone else. Like I had no more authorial claim in that sense. But now actually the team edits everything together. Definitively, the team has gotten far more democratic (laughs) over the years as we've gone on. I used to think when I was much younger and just beginning to contemplate a freelance career, which of course now is the majority of my life. When I was younger, I used to think, well, the team is where I'll make my work, quote unquote, my work. And then the freelance work is where I'll, you know, make a living or or get to work on other things that I'm excited by. And actually now I would say I'm so empowered in my freelance career. It's really where I do the work that is most central Mm. to my heart in the sense of I don't fucking have to build consensus. (laughs) Like I am this guy. (laughs) You You are the director. You're in charge. You could kick a girl. (laughs) Or shove a girl, right? Shove a girl, yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah, you know, it's very tiring to build consensus. But what the team has clarified and become in my brain is the place where I get to try to live my values as thoroughly as possible. Mm. And, you know, it's small enough and it's a tight enough domain that me and the producing director, Ali Lalonde, who's brilliant, can try to set up values that are truly inclusive, that are like we read for Reconstruction, our latest show, we spent the, f- the last three hours of our first workshop together with like 24 artists, all of wow. whom were, you know, getting salaried well to be in the room. We spent the last three hours reading together paragraph by paragraph our collaboration agreement so that everyone would understand and be able to <clears throat> pull at, question, et cetera, the document that would ultimately govern the work being created and that it felt essential to have everyone feel ownership over that document so that there wasn't like some distant institution called the team governing the work. It feels like a little like King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. Everyone has an equal place at the table. There's a leader, but everyone's input is important. Yeah, totally. Sure. Yep. I think we can turn now a little bit and talk 
about the, your first show that came to Broadway, Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812. Sure. And it's a thoroughly environmental production. There have not been many like that. I remember Hal Prince's 1974 revival of Candide, where they gutted the Broadway theater and, and there were stages and audiences all over the place. It was a wonderful experience. And you transformed the Imperial Theater to do the same thing. Moving it from off-Broadway to Broadway, I'm sure the economics played some role in this, but did you feel you were able to maintain your vision of what you wanted that show to be? Oh, God, yeah. I mean, that was that was an intense producerial collaboration, I'll say. Hmm. But fundamentally, Howard was always very clear. He loved what we did at Ars Nova, and he just wanted us to do it bigger, fancier, more fully. And indeed, I have to say, like, Every single time we scaled up that show, there was terror, I think, both on our part and in particular the audience's part, because it had been so successful at Ars Nova, that we would lose what had made it special. And actually, I feel really happy to say it just became more itself every single time it got bigger. And I think a huge part of that is, you know, it was Tolstoy. Like, Tolstoy is not afraid of size is not afraid of opulence, and in fact kind of thrives off of eclecticism because he's writing about the highest and lowest of society, and he's writing about them in the same place, in the same city, drinking the same vodka, you know, fucking each other, and alternately with like pathos and bitter humor in the same paragraph. So yeah, I I actually don't feel like any there was ever an artistic sacrifice that was required working on that show. And did you, as you've talked about from where you started with the poem Howl and bringing in different elements, disparate mythos and, and factual events, did you use that same kind of psychology in producing this work? Mm, that's a good question. Not... Well, I guess I would say the one kind of common thing, because fundamentally people ask a lot how similar is working with the team versus working on freelance stuff. And the answer is for me, it's it's really not similar in large part because there's just no power sharing or not in the same way. And I, I would say anyone who you asked about my freelance process is deep i'm deeply deeply collaborative but it's just different and i would say the one thing that is common and is actually like the thing that really unites dave and i is a deep interest in in looking at history or mythology and bringing it very close to you making it totally contemporary mm. so that i think that the level of anachronism that is both in a teamwork and was in comet that's mm. definitely a, a parallel quickly before we move on you mentioned dave dave malloy for our audience the author of uh, natasha pierre and writer and composer and collaborator yeah. Yeah. yeah on that sort of ensemble creative process front, switching to Hadestown just for a second. You know, that to me, looking at Hadestown and your work on Hadestown, it feels like a particularly, it looks like an ensemble created piece in many ways, in the sense that you are a, a highly collaborative individual as a freelance director. And ultimately, I think 
perhaps because of that, it, it, it's a tremendous success of both content and style, you know, some of which is obviously authorial and some of which is, is directorial slash ensemble based and certainly casting. And I have the impression you know, that each member of the ensemble was, was as important to you as the principal roles in casting that show. Yes, you're asking me if that's true. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, fundamentally, like, Town is too intimate a show. It's only 13 people on mm-hmm. stage. It's not like you have a 30-person ensemble or a 20-person ensemble that people are going to, like, blend into. So you need a collection of five really spectacular individuals. That said, I have to say, blending has never been my primary interest, like the Comet Ensemble. Comet was 30 people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Crazily. Yes. That, and, <laughs> um, and it was very, very purposefully a cast made up entirely of unicorns. Mm. People who danced like no one else dances, who looked nothing like anything but themselves, and who were costumed as such, sort of all, all of the above. So... Yeah. Yeah. And and in Hadestown, how, how very great and cool to have an old pro like Andre DeShield still showing everyone how it's done, too. That was a lot of... Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's part of how that works, is you can pair earlier career people or these, like, wild, raging talents with someone who is a true master, mm-hmm. just like an absolute master of their craft. And both of those energies are thrilling. You mm-hmm. know, it would be... Is something would be lacking one without the other. How much leeway do you tend to give your actors in the development of their performances? That's interesting. I mean, you'd almost have to ask an actor mm-hmm. that because I I don't know how other directors work. Right. What I can say is I will tend to have a strong initial impulse about that character. That, of course, begins with the actor that I choose to carry that role right you know i i like to would like to think i'm i'm really good at casting and i think a big part of this is i'm looking for the most genuine like vivid emotional encapsulation of that character's given circumstance like i want that to be as potent as possible So in many ways, I'm always looking for the actor to bring themselves to the piece and be there as much as they're playing a character. I want their intelligence and or their expertise, whatever their expertise is, their expertise on life. I want that in the space. But I do tend to like say a lot at the beginning of a process. Like it's not, okay, let's see what this wants to be. Like, I'm like, I think this person is doing this because they're terrified. And this line is the most important line to me. Mm. And here's the, you know, 20 images that I've been thinking about. So I I tend to give a lot at the outset. And then I do tend to be very comfortable living in chaos for a long time. Mm, Interesting. Yeah. As the actors figure shit out. Cause I know that actors brains like are synthesizing information at a mile a minute, you know, Mm. everything from this is how my costume fits to when am I going to breathe to the lights are in my eyes to, 
I'm trying to figure out what that other actor is doing to how do I like emotionally leap from one moment to the next. So, so I do tend to then give them a fuckload of space knowing that when I get to tech, I'm going to lock shit down. Right. That's very interesting that you, that you do allow, as you said, chaos to happen for a while, because ultimately I think every director wants their cast to own the show coming in a director knows more about the show than any of the cast. And it's at some point during the rehearsal process, there's a turn or should be a turn. It seems where the actors take over what they're doing and feel more confident and, and capable of carrying that out every night. Do you have a feeling of when that happens or does that happen individually between you and each actor at different times? Oh, it's definitely different. Yeah. I mean, when I taught directing, I would like, you know, talk with the students about two overlapping triangles, right triangles, one being a downward slope from very high to zero, which is the director's ownership. And as that diagonal slides down, it's proportional to another diagonal line ascending, which is the actor's ownership. And I would say that that completes, that trajectory completes on opening night. Now that said, if it's a long running show, there is maintenance to do to make sure that the correct show is, is preserved. And I find that musicals maintain so much better than plays do. And actually to the point where it's extremely painful for me to go back and see a play that I've directed if I haven't been maintaining it sort of weekly. I just find the musicality, the specificity of the musicality and the approach to moments will have shifted enough from where <laughs> we'd left it. Um, that, yeah. you know, as a, as a control, <clears throat> as a control freak, it can be hard to take. Why do you well, think probably, that is? Oh, it's very simple because musicals specify time right. and plays do not. Sure. And you have the music that's always there. And presumably the orchestra is always playing essentially the same tempos and the same sound. So that helps guide a musical along from night to night. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Is that a musical specifies the time in which things unfold, the speed at which you have to think, et cetera. So there might be small variation depending on whether the show is to click or not, but it's not the same as, you know, even an 80 minute play score. Well, and of course, you're leaping into new things. Dave Malloy, who wrote Natasha Pierre, has a new project, A Treatment of Moby Dick, which uh, you directed at Harvard last month. And from what I've seen, it looks to be another kind of expansive, full-blooded, environmental theater piece. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I would say it's environmental. It's definitely a beautiful, sweeping set design again by Mimi Lien who designed Great Comet. Mm-hmm. So so there is a massive epicness to the visual landscape, but it's <clears throat> the audience is in risers. And so they're they're not exactly in the action you're saying, not in the middle of it. Right, right, right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. It's happening on a stage. But yeah, it's I mean it's a big ass <laughs> hard mm-hmm. 
projects, <laughs> which, you know, Moby Dick would always be hard. There's a reason that adaptations of the show have brought people to their knees through since it was written, basically. And this first incarnation has gone very, very well mm-hmm. in terms of audience reception. But it's there's a lot still evolving and uh and it's and it's quite thrilling you know it's dave is trying to use the quote-unquote great american novel to really think about america in the 21st century and in particular think about race and think about ecology Mm. uh so what's next for you Let's see. So the next big, big thing, which I'm very excited about, is a show called Lempika, speaking oh. of traditional and non-traditional forms. This um, is the artist, Tamara Delempitska? That's exactly right. Mm. So this yeah. is a musical by Carson Kreitzer and Matt Gould that is truly fucking epic mm. uh, about the life and work of Tamara Delempika. And we did it at Williamstown two summers ago where it was quite a success. And we're going to be doing it again at La Jolla Playhouse this spring um, in advance of, you know, an anticipated Broadway run in the future. And I find the show emotionally devastating. Mm. And it is both about Paris between the wars and the rise of fascism, but it's also about the love triangle that Tamara had between her, her husband, who is this very handsome aristocrat named Tadeusz Lempicki, and this woman, Rafaela, who she painted arguably her greatest work of were seven canvases of this woman, Rafaela, who was also her lover. And so it's this very, very complex portrait of a marriage that I think feels incredibly modern and also yeah is a woman's story unlike anything I've ever seen Mm. in frankly not just the Broadway sphere like uh, in film I think it's going to be an incredibly unique show sounds great very very exciting we're looking forward to it for sure Rachel Chavkin thank you so so much we value and appreciate everything that you're doing uh, and the stories that you're telling, and we look forward to seeing a lot more from you. So thank you for thank joining you. us. Thank and, you. Uh, appreciate it. It was a pleasure. This has been Half Hour to Curtain, a monthly podcast with theater artists of note. I'm Dan Fishback. I'm Mark Kaufman. Please join us every month as we bring you a new, interesting, delightful human being whose career is dedicated to the theater. For more information about our podcast, please visit www.halfhourtocurtain.com. Half Hour to Curtain is produced by the Los Angeles Musical Theater Studio, theme music by Anthony Luca. For more info on the Musical Theater Studio, visit www.lamts.com. Thanks again. We'll see you next month.